Hey, welcome everybody. We're talking about the Great Resignation with, oh wait, no, 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 wrong show, wrong show. We're going to talk about something more interesting. Uh, we've got Dr. Dave and Fred Brown here together. Uh, we're going to, and of course, Tracy Zimmerman will be joining us in a little bit. I'm Ray Wong and a co-host and co-founder of Disrupt TV. Got our awesome producer, L, and my awesome co-host and co-creator of Disrupt TV, Ala Afshar. But with that, let's do a quick introduction. Um, talk about like who you are, where you're calling in from, what we're talking about today. We got a double header. Uh, Dr. Dave, where are you calling in from? And, uh, you know, what are we talking about? Thanks, Ray. Uh, my name is Dr. Dave Seftel. I'm an internist, CEO, and chief medical officer of an antibody diagnostics company based in South San Francisco, California, called Enable Biosciences. And that's exactly what we do. We enable early and accurate diagnosis of difficult diseases, particularly neutralizing antibodies to COVID. Back to you, Ray. Woohoo. All right. Uh, let's go to Fred. Fred, where are, we, where are we calling in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, Ray, I'm in Amherst, Michigan. Beautiful day out here today. And uh, I work in, I've been working in COVID now for 18 months, but I've been, ta I've been in uh, epidemiology, infectious disease for about 40 years. We've built six vaccines uh, and they, they save about 5.5 million lives a year. And uh, sadly, we have a chance to ex increase that number because of the challenges we're having with COVID. All right, go blue. And uh, all right, and I think we'll see Tracy Zimmer here. If she's here, I'll pop her in. If not, uh, we'll, we'll drop her in a little bit uh, later into the show. With that, uh, do the honors, Ellen. We will kick up, kick off. All right, uh, three, two. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my privilege to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and best-selling author of a new book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Surviving and thriving in a world of digital giants. Congratulations, uh, Ray, on an incredible launch. Thank you. Uh, Ray is also a regular uh, television business and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and Cheddar. He's, in my opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to the Shop TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. He's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet as well from this show. So, but hey, who do we have here today? We've got a double header and it's a very, very interesting one. Very hot, timely topic too. What's going on? We have two extraordinary experts on our show. We'll start with introduction of Fred Brown uh, with business building experience in all aspects of healthcare solution. Fred advises businesses on how they can achieve profitable operations. He has over 15 years of international PNL operating experience responsible top tier consulting in healthcare strategy and growth products and service development and information system. Fred has uh, had over $1.5 trillion of M&A experience. You can follow his company at Deloitte, D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E. -T -T -E. Welcome, Fred, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Ella. Great to be here. Appreciate it. Thank you, Fred. And uh, our, our uh, second guest is Dr. David Seftal, Chief Medical Officer, CEO of Enable Biosciences. Enable Biosciences is a multi-award-winning antibody diagnostics company based in South uh, San Francisco. Dr. David is a seasoned clinician with a strong background in biotech and entrepreneurship. At Harvard Business School, Dr. David co-founded the Health Industry Club, which continues today and drives interdisciplinary innovation in the U.S. and around the world. Dr. David has worked in a number of small startups, including helping to successfully pilot diagnostic products through 510K certifications. Dr. David has also advised and mentored numerous startups, including those in the UCSF Lean Launchpad program and those presenting plans to venture capital and angel investors. You can follow Dr. David on Twitter at D-S-E-F-T-E-L. Welcome, Dr. David, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much, Vala. And I can tell you, Fred Brown is a verified time traveler. <laughs> Literally a year, a month ago, he predicted exactly what is happening with the COVID pandemic, down to the month, down to the numbers, down to the incidents. And I, I'm thrilled to have him as a, as a fellow Harvard grad, and he was on our show, uh, the, the COVID-19 COVID uh, alumni show, 
and he predicted exactly what was going to happen. So listen to Fred tonight. Listen to Fred today. Fred <laughs> will tell you what's happening tomorrow. You know what, Dr. Dave, this is so important, right? I mean, with time travel being, you know, we're having the time travel capabilities we have today. I mean, we're at a critical junction in COVID-19. So, I mean, Fred, tell us, let's start with the state of the state on COVID-19. You know, you went out to the future, came back. Where are we? How are we doing? And what can we expect? And can you also tell us? Uh, can you also tell us the Bitcoin price by December? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We want that too, and and some sports. You know, I want to know who wins the Super Bowl too. But go ahead. <laughs> oh yes. Well, got well with COVID, we're <laughs> we could be doing better. Uh, sad, sadly, we uh, we uh, are going to probably have about seven hundred thousand deaths uh, by the end of this year. More than more than like coronary. Oh my God, that's that's huge. So. We're already probably over that point if you look at excess deaths, but as far as measurable deaths that we you know, contribute directly to COVID, it's going to be around 700,000, I think, by the end of the year, sadly. Uh, and we're probably going to, you know, with this fourth wave isn't showing any uh, kind of opportunity to let up. We're at about a 50% vaccination rate overall, and that's pretty much the turning point. When you get over 50%, you start to see the impact of the vaccines until you get to 50%, especially with with the R0 of so, that's so high on the Delta variant, we're not going to see much of a... Of a, a of a change with a 50 percent uh, uh, vaccination rate. Different, in, however, in, in Israel and in UK, which also reported rates, they actually show a decline because they're about 60 percent, and that's sort of the inflection point that we're at. If we can get just a few more vaccinated and get uh, get uh, the children vaccinated, we'll be in a lot better shape uh, to fight the the fourth wave. But the fourth wave is going to go through, especially the south, uh, uh, badly through the rest of this and then the, the whole country is going to have challenges in the fall, especially in November, December. And you say especially in the South because of the low percentage of vaccinations in the South? Or yeah, there, there, are two, there, there are at least two factors. The first is the low, the low vaccination rate. The second is that people tend to congregate inside in the South when it gets uh, warm because of air conditioning. And for those two reasons, we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of issues. The third sad reason is that some of the policies that the, that, that, that uh, some of these states have been, are implementing right now, like um, you know, mandating no masks, <laughs> um, are probably sadly going to uh, cause continued uh, COVID. Uh, that, that really was would not be what you know infectious disease experts or epidemiologists would recommend. You know, that's so, a great so question. I what have about? to ask. We have okay. trouble in Texas. Trouble in Texas. This is the trouble in Texas. <laughs> I have to ask because I have two healthcare experts, and as you both know, next week is the largest healthcare conference in the U.S. Hims in in Las Vegas. Um, you know, uh, the, today, uh, August fifth, the average uh, positive cases is at 834. Seven day average of Clark County, 834. Exactly a year ago, August 5th, 2020, the seven-day average was 888. So yeah, same. Same. nothing's changed in a year. Of course, at that time, that we didn't have vac vaccines. So what advice do you, by the way, almost positive rate of 19% and mm -hmm. only 51% of the population is vaccinated compared to, let's say, Boston, which is at 71%. Right. What advice, do, first of all, would you be attending? And what advice do you have for folks that are attending? Maybe I'll start with Dr. Dave. I'd rather put my head in a burning oven. <laughs> wow, okay, well, don't hold okay, back. Okay, well, uh, all right. That, <laughs> next. <laughs> wow. Wow. You're the you a new definition to Burning Man. Well, <laughs> the campfires and putting your head in the fire. I mean, you have a Delta variant that is 1,000 times more infectious. 1,000 times more infectious. Uh, people only have to be around for you know five to ten seconds. Somebody sneezes within six feet radius, or or coughs, or chokes on a pretzel, and and and, and that's and gives a new definition to a blast radius. <laughs> and and the other key thing is that the Vegas hotels have not upgraded their HVAC to the CDC requirements. CDC have a wonderful website. If you want to know which building you should go into, go to the CDC website. And it'll tell you how many air exchanges per hour your building has to have in order to be safe. Because there are two critical variables in safety. One is masking, two is airflow. We can mask, but we can't control airflow. So why would you put yourself in an environment where the airflow is so miserable that you get congregation of these particles and almost guaranteed infection? 
Yeah, that's that's exactly right, David. And, and you know, in Las Vegas, it's hot, and so they're not circulating enough uh, outside air in order to save money, and they're not the, the, the HEPA filter uh, rates aren't high enough, and the exchange rates aren't high enough in all those hotels. I, I, I'm a regular attendant attendee of HEPA. I go every year. I did I did not go I this year, and I didn't go last year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and if you're going to go, for God's sake, wear a mask. Wear two masks. And, 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 yeah, and wear two masks and make sure they're NIOSH and 95 compliant. They're and 80% completely. Sealed completely. And, <laughs> yeah. and piss goggles as well. You know, go like the aviator in that Disney movie. <laughs> oh, my. Well, hey, you know. It's stunning to hear two experts uh, vehemently agree that it's really a bad idea. And I mm. guess the delicious power, I mean, I don't, you're, the, the, the community that represents science is holding the event. Um, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunately, Val. I, I think a lot of people are tired. I mean, we've seen this COVID exhaustion, but sure. the virus doesn't care if you're tired or not. It doesn't care if you're red, blue, or pink, or, squ or, or spotted. It doesn't care if you're Republican or Democrat. This is a lean, mean, killing machine. Yeah. If you're not vaccinated, it'll hunt you down and kill you. Uh, and what's what's challenging about this is it's an international event, you know, uh, yeah. and people are flying in from all over the all over the world. Yeah, they are. Want to see exactly? If people want to see just how these variants spread. There's a phenomenal website called GISAID, where they agglomerate all of the genomic data, and they can they have wonderful, beautiful maps like travel maps that show exactly where the strain the strain started and left, which airport it went to, and so on. GISAID. It's yeah. a nonprofit site. It agglomerates all the genomic data testing from all around the world and creates these wonderful graphs. Go to that site before you travel, so you know where things are going. And, well, and you know, just just to make it a little bit more uh, remarkable, HIMS is the Informatics Conference for Healthcare, right? And yes. Informatics is is enabling digitization. It's enabling virtualization of everything that we do. And what do they do? They all fly to Las Vegas. I, I <laughs> don't do it, <laughs> please. It's a wonderful show. I, I have regularly attended. Incredible yes. innovation, incredible thought leaders, incredible uh, source of inspiration because you leave the conference and you actually oh. have a vision of what the industry is going towards. Um, oh. But yeah, everything you said. Well, hey, you know, let, let, let's talk a little about the um, about where we are, right? And I, I think that's important, right? I mean, you know, oh. we, we've got these mRNA vaccines, right? Uh, how effective are they, and why are they so effective? Uh, and and really taking that along the line, um, you know, if you've got the vaccine and and you show up or if you've gotten COVID-19, how effective are antibodies versus the vaccine? Right. Because I think people want to know. I mean, just they, they they don't understand, you know, good, bad. They want to understand the gradations of gray. Right? Like, so what, what is the proportional response and what's the probability? Right. Yeah, Fred is a vaccinologist. So I'll let him talk about the mRNA and I am an antibody guy. So I'll answer the antibody. Question. There you go. You go, Fred. So, so the mRNA vaccines are incredibly effective. I've worked on with vaccines for 40 years, and I have never worked on a vac on a set of vaccines that are that are this effective um, uh, before in, in my career. They uh, are, you know, if and and they're in fact in, they're effective uh, in two ways. First, they reduce transmission, and even with the Delta virus, we're, we're looking at reduction of transmission by at least 60 percent, if not more. Um, uh, and, We've got some, we're still working with real world data in that space. But as far as uh, incre uh, decreasing um, uh, the onset of disease, uh, which was the end clinical endpoint that we use for all of, all of our, uh, all, all the vaccines, uh, it is, you know, in the 94, 95 percent percent of reduction versus a, a versus a controlled group that doesn't get vaccinated. What's interesting about you know, the current vaccine hesitancy that we have is everyone says it went so fast, they must have cheated some way. Re remarkably, the reason it went so fast is because the problem is so bad. If you are doing a vaccine and you can't find anyone who's sick, it takes forever. You know, I've been in that situation. We got a great vaccine. We set up everything up in Sierra, Sierra Leone and the thing outbreaks in Liberia and you go, oh, no. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and then you, you, you lose a season. But here, Johnson and Johnson actually said, you know, we've got so many people who are getting sick that we can very quickly stop, you know, uh, stop this, the, you know, stop this trial uh, remarkably quickly. In two, three months, we're done with 15,000 patients, uh, 30,000 patients, 40,000 patients. We, we, we've tested this now uh, in, the, in the clinical trial settings, you know, with 75,000 patients and in the real world with with literally hundreds, hundreds of millions. I mean, it's the world's largest clinical trial in effect live. I mean, it's pretty wild, right? So, yeah, I mean, the first time 
in my lifetime, perhaps, you know, in our, where the entire world was trying to solve a single problem, uh, which is which is incredible. Dr. Dave, you're going to talk about. Yeah, I think the vaccines have accomplished a remarkable feat of engineering. However, the critical information is, did that vaccine work for you? And right now, vaccine effectiveness, which is different from efficacy. Efficacy is what they measure in a clinical trial. They follow these people. They study them. They draw blood from them. They you know, make them anemic with the amount of blood that they draw for them. But <laughs> real-world effectiveness is what counts. How long does your immunity last? And that data is still emerging. And that data is going to drive what type of booster you get and when you get that booster. And so the you're definitely thinking boosters are happening. So, Pardon me? You're definitely oh, yeah. thinking boosters will be happening, right? So. Oh, yeah. Because, and, and as you know, both Pfizer and other major manufacturers are already testing and getting their boosters ready. But the critical thing is determining who needs a booster and when. And the way you do that is by measuring neutralizing antibodies. Not all antibodies are created equal. Your body produces specific antibodies that can neutralize this virus. And your ability to have a reasonably high level of effective neutralizing antibodies is critical to your immunity. So, what we do at our company, we've developed a, uh, what we term a surrogate neutralizing antibody assay that the state of California has adopted as their sole assay for a surveillance program throughout California in order to study and find out for once and for all how many people are actually having effective immunity against the Delta variant, for example. And we believe this is a paradigm that has to follow for the rest of the country. The public health needs to go out and provide people with testing free of charge, as they're doing in California, so that they can find out whether or not their vaccine worked, if it's still working, and when they need a booster, and what kind of booster they need. And so this is a critical piece of information, so that we can take action based on facts, not based on circumstance. And, and you know your 19% uh, positivity rate? That means you're not testing enough. If you're at 19% positivity, that means... Yeah. You, and, and that's been a persistent yeah. problem throughout this. We just don't have the information, the data, the data yeah. can, can, can collect immediately. We should have everybody being tested twice a week, not like they do in Europe for free. We're not doing that. That was the goal in August that CDC set up. We never made, we, we never, we never made that, and we're not, we're not vaccinating why, enough. Why because, don't we have the testing apparatus in place? I mean, you'd think that's basic public health. You know, I, I went to some other school in Baltimore that studies public health, and, you know, like, we, we start with a testing program at the basics you know they love so. to collect data but the actual process of getting the data is cumbersome and remember that until very very recently to get an antibody test that was accurate you had to go and get a needle stuck in your arm yeah you have pcr so yeah well the current neutralizing antibody says that you have to go and get a needle stuck in your arm you have to take half a day to go and wait in line at quest diagnostics or lab corp or wherever it is so what we've developed is a home-collected dried blood spot kit that the state mails out. So people in the comfort of their home, they prick their finger, they put a spot down on a piece of paper, they mail it in, and we can run it. And we think... And you know, Israel was doing this and they now have kind of some what they call correlation of protection. So they can actually say, if your antibody levels drop by this much, you need another vaccine. And, that, and, and so we ha are getting that data now. David can tell you more. Absolutely. So we need to do what Israel has done. We need to do what, what, what makes sense from a public health perspective. And we're very gratified that public health in California has taken the initiative with funding, I might add, from the CDC. But, uh, you know, the problem is that the states also run their own public health department. So we need to get the message out. This is not a political issue. This is a public health issue, but it's also an individual issue because there's a large population of people that are immunosuppressed, they have cancer, they have other pre-existing conditions, and the vaccines simply don't work that well with them. They need boosters no. earlier. And the only way to know when they need a booster is to monitor their neutralizing antibodies over time. Just like with your Fitbit, you monitor your pulse rate, sure. you should be monitoring your antibody levels, and then you have an actionable number to say, I got to get vaccinated or I don't. Wow. And you know, uh, the, number of, the number of breakthroughs we're having right now is kind of one in 5,000. And now with the Delta variant, it's going to go to one in a thousand. So we'll, we'll see a lot of breakthroughs that we can actually test and look at and understand what that correlation of protection is. Uh, as I said, the Israel study was sort of interesting. We found that, you know, they, they found the people who are over 60 were, you know, that didn't have the right antibody level to three times more likely to get reinfected. So uh, and, and, you know, it, it, and that's similar to this to this to the reinfection rates of, of the 18 to 40 year olds uh, in, in that study. So that, um, you know, that, that that's important. Uh, as, as we start to have more and more problems coming up with with, with breakthrough.
Sure, sure. Now, in, in the U.S., one in 60 adult workers work, work for Amazon. Amazon employs over a million uh, folks in the U.S. Uh, they just announced that you don't have to go to the office until 2022. Mm -hmm. um, and so my question is, do big companies need to have a chief healthcare officer on staff? Salesforce has a chief healthcare officer. We have dozen medical doctors that work for Salesforce guiding our policies, our culture, even our technology roadmap, because we're trying to help our clients safely have this office reopening phase that we started a few months ago. And now certainly are, we're, we're uh, re-examining. What are your thoughts in terms of big organizations um, or maybe organizations of all sizes, but certainly big organizations, making sure that there is a healthcare expert resident on staff that can help influence policy. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. It's a critical, critical asset. You've got CFOs, you've got CEOs, you need to have a CMO for every major organization mm -hmm. because the health impacts not just productivity, but also the workflow. And uh, the, uh, as I mentioned before, the critical thing is re-engineering those buildings. I think one of the reasons why Amazon doesn't want people to go back is because they're going to be updating the HVAC systems. They're going to be putting in UV filtration. They're going to be putting in all of these different things. The Amazon has been very proactive since the beginning in terms of testing. And I think all corporations need to take a long, hard look at their physical plant as well as their uh, employee management practices. I don't think we'll ever go back to open plan offices uh, unless we have incredibly high throughput of airflow in those spaces. Yeah, you know, it it, uh, the, it matters what 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 you do with your with with your company, right? If you are able to distance and still be productive, uh, then those companies really shouldn't be going back to work at all. If you're in the unfortunate situation where you have to have interaction, then you really need to protect those people who are constantly being having interaction, having to go use public transportation to get to office, you know, be be in an office or be physically, you know, talking with people uh, from the outside uh, at all time. Uh, those people really are the ones who are most uh, at risk, and you've got to you know you've got to understand whether their personal risk levels are such that you don't want them to potentially you know can't contract the disease on, on the work site and die because when that happens, that really does affect obviously you know the the entire culture and and you don't want that 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 to occur. So far, we haven't had too much of that happening, but as we see that as, as, as David said, as the Delta variant starts to come in, these the, this variant is very effective at, at infecting 18 to 40 year olds. We're seeing the largest spike mm -hmm. in that age group, and that's the that's the pro productive you know you know that's the most productive uh, group of people that we probably have uh, in the workforce who are probably most at, going to be most at risk. And you're going to see a lot of those people coming down with very serious illness, and and if they're certainly if they're not vaccinated and dying. So uh, the chief health officer is critical for establishing the culture, the etiquette, the policy, uh, and, and determining who uh, under under what conditions is working and where. So Fred, since we found out you can time travel, uh, I'm going to ask you, as you time travel into the future, do you see a nationwide mask policy or vaccination mandate policy? Well, as David said, we're, we're working a, a state by state. Uh, and that's disappointing. Uh, I, you know, I was disappointed the entire way through about the level of national support we've had uh, for this COVID virus. The problem with viruses, it doesn't say, oh, I'm at the Michigan border. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> it crosses the border in Ohio and vice versa. And that's a problem that we're having. Uh, and so I, I don't see a nationwide anything with COVID at this point. I, and sadly, I don't see it happening uh, by the end of the year either, in spite of the fact we're going to go through a fourth. But, but, but jump, jumping in real quick, I, I'm kind of curious: is, is density as a business model over? I mean, I mean, we've had pandemics, we've had flus. I mean, you know, I mean, the the, the contrarian question would be like, I mean, this is going to keep happening. Well, tons of different types of variants. I mean, we just, you know, the countries that haven't figured out how to live with the virus are, are the ones that are going to fail economically, right? So what, what do people do? I mean, do we all shut down? Do we turn into Australia where like they can't get to work because no one has a vaccine? I mean, like what, what happens, right? So, I mean, we've got vaccines as the frontline defense. we got masks as a second line defense. we got therapeutics on the back end in case you get sick. Like what's required so that we actually get back to work? Because... You know, the proportional response, there's got to be a proportional response. You can't keep infinitely spending money on this uh, because it's, it's never going to be over. I mean, that's the nature of disease. That's the nature of life. What, what do we do? Like at, at a rational level in your trips going forward into the future, what did, what did we do? You know? I mean, I'm not, unfortunately right now, proximity is pathologic. But there is a silver lining, and I know Fred will talk about this. 
and that is that we are looking at a new generation of pan-coronavirus vaccine. Pan meaning all coronaviruses. So there are a number of vaccines in development that will provide protection against the entire family of coronaviruses. And that would be the silver bullet for corona. And that would buy us some time to work on pandemic preparedness for other viruses. So that's the hope. That's the hope and the prayer that we will have a universal vaccine that it generates sufficient immunity to knock out the entire family. Yep. And, and it's important to act fast. One of the problems we've had is we're just not acting fast enough. Uh, if we'd act fa acted faster uh, on, a, on a national basis for, with, with COVID, we could have actually probably uh, eliminated it. Unfortunately, we didn't really, uh, with, the, with the exponential growth curves, we didn't understand when it was coming in. We didn't have a test to, to determine who had the, the disease. We didn't, uh, we, we still are six months behind the WHO, which isn't known for very much speed, right? We, it took us six months to say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, six weeks to say, you know, that, that Delta variant looks pretty bad. They, they knew that it was a problem six weeks before we did, and they're still we're still looking at data six weeks old to determine our health policy. And that is absolutely unacceptable. Yeah. Now, I question, mean, though, on that is... thing is okay. they didn't listen to Fred Brown early enough. <laughs> well, hey, no, I, I looked at your presentation, oh, vaccines man. versus variants, and I was like, okay, I mean, I get the exponential growth curve. I know that, you know, variants are multiplying at a rate faster than we could ever come up with vaccines, right? So it's a very, very different game. It's not man on man. It's like, you know, you're playing safety defense, like zone defense to make it work, oh. um, you know, but, but, the, but, but the challenge really is, I mean, in the other countries where the Delta variant was spreading, the vaccination rates were lower and they weren't using mRNA vaccines in the same rate. Right. So would you say that, you know, it wasn't you wouldn't know what that spread's going to look like, what curve looked like. So being six weeks late was really because we still didn't put in testing infrastructure. Right. And the question is, why haven't we put in testing infrastructure? I mean, one group would blame it was the politics of the previous administration. The other group is like, OK, we're in this current administration. Why still don't we have testing infrastructure? You think we'd figure this out by now? This is basic uh, public think, health. Like I what's think, holding us up as a, as, a, as a society from doing that? Well, um, you know, from my perspective, we're making steps, but we aren't making steps at a national level. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. <laughs> and uh, you know, ultimately, what we need, we need a testing czar for this country. Mm. So I, I call out to our friends in the Biden administration, we don't just get a vaccine czar, we need a testing czar, somebody who can implement a policy and enforce that policy, because that is what will get us out of this pandemic, get us out of every other pandemic, being able to understand, to predict, and to prevent based on actionable information. Plus, we're not even testing at the border. I mean, the border's wide open. I mean, it's like we're all protecting ourselves and we're letting all these people in that are not even being tested. I mean, that's even worse. We got millions of people going all across planes, cross trains, buses, into places that are supposed to be safe. Well, right. So. You touched on an absolutely critical point, right? In Israel, it's not good enough just to show that you're vac a vaccination card. You have to produce a lab result showing your antibodies were positive at a certain level. Wow. And we believe that should be the standard. Anybody can right. forge a vaccine card, but you have to have a, be able to produce a verifiable proof that you had enough antibodies to protect you. Then you should be allowed to travel. And that should be universal. People shouldn't be able to travel from India, or from Guatemala, or from the UK, or from Venice, or whenever, unless they produce proof of vaccination and proof of neutralization, in my humble opinion. Fred, your thoughts, you're on mute. Fred, Fred, you're on mute, sorry. And most countries, by the way, uh, are, are uh, well, many countries are doing this. For example, Hong Kong, the UK, they all have, if you try to travel internationally right now, you'll get a sense of just how, you know, buttoned down these countries really are. They they, they are, are requiring quarantining on both sides of the travel. They're requiring you know, one or two tests, uh, you know, during the course of your travel and when you when you arrive and even after you've arrived. Uh, you know, you're talking about between 14 and 21 day quarantines on average for many of these countries when you enter. So uh, it, it, it's, it's quite complicated to travel internationally and, and for a good reason. And but interestingly, everyone who travels internationally says, boy, it's such a relief to get back to the United States. It's so easy here. But the truth wow. is we pay for that. <laughs> we pay for that. Yeah. yeah. Fred, I know Deloitte, you know, globally advises the largest, most successful, fastest growing companies in the world in terms of adoption of emerging technologies like machine learning, Internet of Things, quantum computing, uh, blockchain, and so on and so forth. 
we've had experts come on the show and said the pandemic has accelerated digital transformation in business as much as a decade. Yeah. For example, e-commerce, contactless payments, and so on and so forth. Can you give a sense of what's the sense of urgency as you talk to CEOs, board members, chief information, digital officers, in terms of the pandemic's impact in bringing what may have been a 2026 IT roadmap into 2021? Well, that's a great that's a great question. I can't talk for Deloitte. I, I promise I wouldn't talk as the sure. Deloitte, but I'll talk for myself, having been in the space. Uh, and you're right. There are two things that are happening. The first thing is that uh, the acceleration, especially for example in healthcare, where, where, where Dave and I both work, um, you know, we're talking about uh, you know large large inter integrated delivery networks who used to do ten or twelve you know visits a day across across 10,000 physicians are now doing 70% of their, <laughs> of their, of their work remotely. Uh, that's it. Uh, we're looking at. Uh, and so that that's an example in one industry. And that's true about uh, education as well. Most, most of the campuses in, in the country that are privately run are insisting that people be, be, be vaccinated. And they're, they also still allow and have remote, remote learning capabilities and are expanding those. So the first thing that's happening is that you're getting a fa much faster uh, demand for those services and the supply is there. The other thing that's happening is that we were on a on a growth curve already, and that accelerated the growth curve. So if you think about the the fact that you know two years can sometimes mean you know this much growth, and two years can sometimes mean that much growth, we were on the accelerating path already, and that because we, that, that those two years really is going to fundamentally change industry. Uh, I think for the rest of our lifetimes uh, in terms of what we're able to do remotely, what our expectations are for services that are remote, uh, what, 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 what people are uh, expecting for the, from the workplace, what kind of support they're expecting, um, uh, how, how many partner, uh, what kind of partnering. And you mentioned this idea about, you know, bringing people together. I think instead it'll be much more a networked virtual environment that brings people together with some common interests like we're doing here rather than having to get everyone together in a physical space. No, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, let's get to the technology being used to detect antibodies on the surveillance front. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Dave, tell us a little bit more about how ADAP works and why it's more effective in reducing false positives and false negatives. Uh, this is part of that, you know, understanding your antibody, you know, your viral loads, you know, testing portion as you come through um, and being able to do that more quickly. Uh, what, how does ADAP work and what is it? ADAP is a completely unique testing technology. It stands for Antibody Detection by Agglutination PCR. And it was developed by two brilliant young PhD students at UC Berkeley and Stanford, Peter Robinson and Jason Tsai. They have figured out a solution to a 44-year-old problem, and that is how do we detect antibodies with incredible sensitivity using the same PCR that we use to detect viruses? And they did it by creating these tiny nano-sized DNA barcodes. Just like you've got barcodes on anything in the supermarket, and you go through the, the supermarket checkout, it's very quickly and easily. To, to, to log that very accurately, they created these tiny nano-sized DNA barcodes and the technology to attach them to antibodies. That's the fundamental of, of ADAP. It's a patented technology uh, owned by the University of Berkeley and that we are exclusively licensed and deploying. And we are deploying it for CDC, State of California, Mayo Clinic, uh, Stanford, UCSF, etc. All because we're able to have a test that has 10,000 times increased sensitivity. What is sensitivity? Wow. We can detect a disease a lot earlier because the moment your body's exposed to any kind of bad bug, it starts to produce antibodies. But the antibody levels ratchet up over time. And if you can detect it at week one and you can treat that person at week one, you can save all the problems further down the line. And that's why sensitivity matters. But specificity also matters. You've got to be able to make sure you're actually measuring what you're looking to measure. And the barcode makes sure that you're only measuring a COVID antibody that you're looking at in question. And the test that we're deploying for California is a multiplex test. In other words, we can measure these neutralizing antibodies against alpha, beta, delta, epsilon, all in a single tiny dried blood spot sample. And that is why the CDC and the state of California has, has exclusively contracted with us because we can do something that nobody else can do easily and accurately. And that, 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 accurately, what does that mean in terms of reducing false negatives, false positives? The false positive and false negative rate is incredibly low because we have this barcode. 
you know, if you go to the supermarket, check out how many times did the barcode not read right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> we built these barcodes. We built their completely synthetic pieces of DNA. They do not exist in nature. We make them so that they, they're, they're literally, uh, you know, robotic pieces of, of DNA. And we run them on robots. That's the other thing. That's we have these very large Hamilton robots that run the whole test. So there's no wow. opportunity for human error. Uh, and you, because, sorry, go ahead. And you know that uh, David's point about the early detection is so critical with, with, mm -hmm. with viral diseases because you know, in three to five days, the, you're, you're this, the, the virus is, 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 very, uh, is already you know, replicating hundreds of millions of times in your body. So if you can detect that, uh, that, that, that process earlier and, and stop that exponential curve earlier with, with, with drugs, and, and almost every test we've, we've conducted in clinical trials says, if you can get this drug to you, to this patient earlier, it'll work great. Unfortunately, we're finding out that by day 10 or day 15, you know, we, when we apply the drug, it's, you know, the, the, the virus has already completely overcome your body and you're already in pneumonia phases. Absolutely. So if folks want to learn more about it, you can go to calscope.org, which is the state of California, CDPH, Public Health Department's site, and it'll tell you a little bit about the program. Other states that want to get involved, uh, you know, you can, can contact the California Department of Public Health and contact us. The program is funded by the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. Wow. So potentially, if other states want to do it, we'd love to help. And, you know, I was I was working with OWS and we were trying desperately to get David's testings, you know, given out to everybody who had who, who got a shot, everyone who had a vaccine. And, uh, you know, as, as David said, every state is different. So California did that. You know, so and we now are, are, are watching what's going on at a, at a, at a population level uh, with the decline and, 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 and waning of the diseases. And, it's, and it changes. Everyone is different, as David said. You know, your, your, your immune system are quite different if you're immunosuppressed, if you're older. All those, all those things make a difference. And so we need to watch that on a population level. And David's test is nice because it comes in a piece of paper. You send it out, you get people, and you send it back in, and you get your result. Not one of these where you've got to go, as David said, and, and go to a, to a special lab site. So it's a, it was a fabulous opportunity, and we've missed that one, too. <laughs> the Olympics would have been a great one, too, as well. I mean, to... sending out 200,000 kits, so it's a very small portion of the entire population. Yeah. And ultimately, what we'd like to see is we'd like to see people, individuals, empowered to test themselves. It's an inexpensive test, so we're looking to deploy it, hopefully, going forward. And you know, Be Beijing may be the opportunity, right? Beijing 2022. The, the Chinese are already shutting everything down. They're they're getting ready now <laughs> for, for for Beijing because they saw what happened in Tokyo. Yeah, no, they definitely see that. Hey, um, quick shout out. Saul Kaplan says hi, Fred. I have no idea why. He says some says hello. <laughs> Great exploits. He knows. <laughs> so <it's> amazing. So <laughs> an old friend of ours. Well one of the great guys in the world. I, uh, you know, he's he's running the whole state of Rhode Island and, and the rest of the nation. So I saw. He's one of, he's one of my mentors. He's, he's amazing. <laughs> so he's just, that's uh, not true. He taught me a lot. I shouldn't say. <laughs> what did he talk about? <laughs> I, I think Fred is more fans than the Kardashians. Yeah, I'm beginning to think so. Yes, and deservedly so. Yes, deservedly. Your book. Well, hey. Incredible work! It's an honor to have you on our show. No, it's okay. wonderful to have you on the show. Uh, any last advice for folks that are looking at return to work, thinking about policies going forward, hosting a conference or event? We have our conference; it's a small one in Half Moon Bay. What are the things we should be thinking about in October? Uh, in October, yeah, October twenty fifth. So, uh, what should we be thinking about? What should we do to you know keep everybody safe? So, well, Half Moon Bay is a great place to do it because there's always wind. There's wind. Have <laughs> <laughs> it windy. But, you know, get, get button up, but have it in a windy environment and make sure that people are all vaccinated. Do not allow anybody who's not vaccinated into that group. And if you can, make sure that they have an antibody test as well. Should, well, we, should we test out your testing at our site? <laughs> um, that's another option. That's definitely another option. Yeah, really? I like that. Uh, as someone who's planning to attend, I, I would say yes. <laughs> there you go. Any any testing on site? Any testing on site? Do as much as you do as much as you can in large crowds outside if you can, if you can do it. As, as David said, as David said, it's all about masking. It's all about vaccination. Well, well, Delta have gone through by then and blown by because it seems to be moving in and out very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, I, I I think you may you might find that um, uh, not October so much, but November. I think you're doing it at, at a good time of the year. Uh, yeah. By, by November, I think it gets challenging. So we're Grab trying to make them fun. Now. 
Yeah. All right. Well, we're here with Fred Brown, consultant at Deloitte, and Dr. David Seftel, chief medical officer and CEO of Enable Biosciences, getting a really good update on what's happening on the COVID-19 situation, vaccines versus variants, what to watch out for, and more importantly, um, this new world of ADAP and testing that's popping up there with antibody testing. Thank you so much for being on the show and hope to have you back. It's our pleasure, Ray. Thanks, Ray. It's great. Thank you, sir. Terrific. Wow. That was just mind blowing. <laughs> mind blowing. Mind blowing. Of course, amazing. When we talk about mind blowing. It's our next guest. Uh, it's our privilege for Ray and I and the Disrupt community to have Tracy Zimmerman, President and CEO of Robots and Pencils. Tracy brings over 20 years of expertise in marketing, technology, and strategic leadership to a role as President and CEO of Robots and Pencils, a digital innovation firm that helps organizations around the world use mobile, web, and frontier technology to transform their businesses. One of the smartest companies I've had the privilege of working with, hands down. At Robots and Pencils, uh, Tracy focuses on finding ways to grow the business while improving operations and benefits of the company's talents and clients. Tracy began her career as a software developer and an analyst consultant for multinational companies across financial, education, and medical sectors, including Bank of America and Siemens Healthcare. Tracy has held several senior leadership roles in marketing operations, experience, and innovation in higher education industry. She's a great follow on Twitter at TR Zimmerman, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N. Welcome, Tracy, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Val. Thanks for the welcome. And I often retweet both of you guys, so I think this is uh, pretty <laughs> synchronous for us to retweet each other. So really Thank happy you. to be here and nice Thank to see you and I certainly admire the company you work for as well. Thank yeah, you. no, hey, and we're really excited partner. to have you. They're a great partner, yes. Yeah, no, we're excited to have you here. Uh, you know, one of the things interesting, you know, as a good segue from our other segment is this concept of digital HQ. It's picking up, right? What's up? Digital headquarters. Everyone's talking about yes. it. You know, what's happening? Is it, you know, tell us a little bit about what it is. Let's start there, right? And then, of course, you know, how people are getting there, how people are building that uh, to get to this digital HQ. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited. Digital HQ is one of the things I feel like, you know, we started talking about it early on because Robots and Pencils was growing really rapidly. We were growing across multiple offices with multiple clients. So we had to very quickly shift from, you know, kind of single office location where most of our client work was local to rapid growth and we were spread out across Canada and the U.S., et cetera. So um, it's, it's something where we got in there early and it's really been awesome to see companies figure this out. I've actually been impressed with how much people have figured out, to be honest. Um, but I do think that there's a real opportunity. I mean, just to kind of segue to the conversation you guys just came from about COVID. Like we, as leaders, we don't know what to expect, but I can tell you this, like digital obviously isn't going anywhere and we need to be really prepared not to see the time that we've reacted to over the last year plus as, okay, we're gonna band-aid this till we get back to running things the way we were before. The, the kind of digital first has to be here to stay. Um, I do believe this was an acceleration of a trend that was already happening anyway. Um, but as you guys know, many companies do not embrace change. And so this force, the involuntarily, involuntary digital transformation is still rolling through. You know, the products and services that Robots and Pencils produce is world-class. When you go to your homepage, you see all these incredible clients that you have, some of the biggest, fastest growing companies in the world. So you as the CEO of Robots and Pencils engage with all these business leaders that are trying to adopt a digital first mindset, recognizing this decentralized effect the pandemic has had in the business world. What are the pitfalls? Like what's holding them back? What's the common obstacle for these business leaders to create and cultivate a well-oiled uh, digital headquarters you know, uh, in, in the cloud? That's a great question. I think there's there's the top two things are really hard to pick what's more important. Um, but I'll just I'll start with saying thinking digital first. Um, you know, mm -hmm. that comes with culture, processes, communication. If you're not good at it, just admit you're not good at it. A lot of companies yep, yep, aren't. Yep, I mean, actually the leadership should. team is that the, the crowd at the top were old and most likely to not know it well, right? So go find the people in the organization who are good at it and give them opportunities to help to, to contribute and help to level um, you up. I mean, if you're not already doing this, you're you're behind. Um, and, you know, I, I again, like I said, I am encouraged because I think a lot of people are doing it, but to really start to enforce that, like it's like when people were talking all the time about mobile first, this is digital first, process, people, communication. And then very related to making that successful is there has to be an all-in approach. There has mm -hmm. to be participation, you know, from the leadership 
and and a consistent, not sort of a like, oh yeah, we're doing this stuff because we have to, or my boss said we had to, or you know, you know, guys just post the stuff and that's you know what we're trying to do while, until we get back together. We really have to be bought in, and we'll also kind of warn the leaders um, something to be prepared for. It's both an opportunity and a danger, which is you know once you start talking on these platforms and you're out there and you're running digital, everyone's going to talk to you. And you will hear from everybody in the organization. And that represents a <laughs> tremendous opportunity. Like Rita McGrath talks about trying to hear things from the edges, yeah. right? Meaning the people that are actually talking to your customers, the people that are actually, I always say, I don't really work at Robots and Pencils, right? I mean, I don't do work at Robots and Pencils. Mm -hmm. So this is opportunity to hear from people, but it also can be very overwhelming, especially yeah. for, you know, larger companies or leaders who are used to getting a lot of information filtered up to them. Yeah. So like, you know, I know people have been probably been dealing with this over the last year plus, but recognize it as an opportunity. I've got 60,000 people slacking to Mark. You know, it's amazing the, the, yes. the, the bi-directional volume from like an intern who just joined and just recognizes our founder is accessible and they just, and I see it and it's, 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 but you know what it does do? It allows you see, to see and hear good ideas in the fabric of your organization. It's not the best titles that are winning. It's the best ideas. Yes. I mean, it's, it's noisy. But if you can, if, if you can, you know, guide noisy, through the yeah. rapid waters, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, no, we definitely see that. And it's an important part, right? Because yeah. that signal intelligence is, is really what's creating these business graphs, right? And it's really important to be able to exert, you know, the signal and extract that signal from the noise, but you need more signals, right? And if you don't have the signals, you never get to the ideas, you never get to those areas. And, and that's definitely uh, one of the big signals that we keep seeing right now is really this need for reskilling, the need for talent. Uh, we were just on a call this morning with like 20 CIOs and, and, the, and the number one issue was we can't find enough people. Uh, I just left a organization that has 400 180 open headcount for IT. I mean, yep. just IT alone, and, and they can't find the right folks. Uh, and so it's part of this digital HQ and part of that moving. I mean, Trace, one of the things you're talking about is really this need for reskilling, retraining. Let's talk a little bit more about that and where, where are we in that state? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I talk to a lot of CEOs. I'm in YPO, and the number one behind either explicitly or implicitly, the number one blocker to growth and, and capturing opportunity is having the right people and in technical skills and lots of other skills. Um, so I, I definitely think there's a huge opportunity there. It's another thing where it's like, hey guys, we should have been doing digital for a while now. So you weren't slapped so hard by the pandemic. Very similar. Like we knew this was coming. It's been an issue. Um, and now because actually economic growth and shifting and acceleration, it's it's hitting us harder. Um, so I have a few thoughts about this. One is that I, I do think sometimes companies are being lazy. Um, and I, there are tons of talented, hardworking people out there that they but they may not fall into the traditional mold. Um, I really think that as leaders and, and in our organizations, we need to expand our horizons and, and our openness to how we identify talent. Um, again, we've known about this for years. Um, the good news is I don't think that organizations need to solve this on their own. I actually don't think they should. There's lots of companies from the startup ecosystem to the traditional institutions or continuing ed within traditional institutions, boot camps, et cetera, who are building great flexible programs. And I think companies can come along alongside those, invest in some of those programs, um, you know, and, and make this successful. I think this is a forcing factor companies have been, you know, like I said, I shouldn't say lazy, but it kind of is true. Like they bring people in, they bring them in on credentials. We're not great at hiring. We're not great at knowing who's successful in our companies. We're just not. I think I am at Robots and Pencils, but look, most companies aren't. And so we'd say, hey, let's get somebody with this education credential, give them some time and hopefully it works out. Doing it this way forces you to say, what do I really need in this role to have somebody be successful? The answer mm -hmm. MBA is not an answer. We need to get to <laughs> what are the skills? What are the capabilities of this person? Because once you understand that, you can do more of a, a skills gap analysis and understand, hey, I'm gonna bring you into this role, Ray. Um, when you join my team, like you have these four or five things which are critical to success and I need you to take a boot camp and learn to be a do some Python development, just bring up something that you may not know, Ray, because you seem like you know a lot of he things. And then, you know, have some accountability around that. <laughs> and then when you bet with those people, I actually think you start to solve for loyalty because people feel you've invested in them. Um, sure. And then it helps with retention. And, and those people are also going to often be creative at sponsor at, at spotting other talent that are outside the box. But we have let it kind of hit a crisis point before before anything was done, um, which has been good for the growth of my business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, at one point, Robots and Pencils 
was named the fastest growing startup in North America. I think you had achieved 5,000% growth, which is yeah. hard to Crazy. wrap my head around. Right. <laughs> but, but, and the design yeah. and the beauty of your products absolutely stands out in the market. So are you willing to share like maybe CEO you. secrets in terms of how you recruit these incredible engineers? As an example, we had Aaron Levy on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he said for design uh, hires, we only go on the consumer side. And he's yeah. a B2B box, uh, but he's only hiring consumer-oriented designers. Yeah. So he shared some uh, advice in terms of how yeah. you can look beyond the traditional uh, swim lane to bring talents into box. What are you doing to attract the best and brightest yeah. and continuing to grow robots and pencils? Yeah, no, that's actually a great observation. I agree. Um, bringing that consumer design thinking into the enterprise. I mean, we're all still, we're all people using technology. Nobody was like, oh, well, now I'm at work. I want a crappy user experience. You know, let's, let's bring them, let's lower the bar. Um, so I think that's a great tip. I think for robots and pencils, I mean, one, I think we attract the talent based on our culture. There are really no shortcuts, unfortunately. It, take, it takes time to build it and create something that attracts the type of people that you want to be at your organization. And hopefully it will also repel the people from the organization that aren't signed up for your mission and don't wanna be part of your culture. Um, and so we, we think a lot about you know creating, a, really my responsibility in the organization is to create an, an environment where my team can do their best work. You know, and people that are good at what they do, they value that a lot. And there's the devil is in 4,000 levels of details around that in terms of things like how we schedule meetings, what we expect with teams, how we compensate people, how we promote people, how we communicate to people. You really have to start by saying who are the, I, I believe starting with the type of people that you want to attract and then building your organization around that. And methodology wise, how you do that is, talk to the people that work at your company that you want more people like, like it seems obvious, but just cause it's obvious doesn't mean it happens. Sure. And then do like a kind of collaborative process with your, with your team, because if your team feels part of the process, which we do this a lot at RMP. And again, it's another humbling experience, but if you can listen and you have the responsibility as a leader to sort of aggregate the feedback and you just still have to manage the, you know, profitability and all the other goals of the business. And then, you know, I think if you consistently communicate with the team and they feel like part of the journey, um, that will help with talent retention. As far as hiring more people, most, you know, the majority of our hires continue to come from talent referrals. Um, and then the ones that don't, we're relying on our talent and their really happiness at RMP to spread the word. So even, you know, through our interview process, people are like, well, this is why I came to RMP because this is what the company's wow. like. So unfortunately, I don't think there's a lot of shortcuts. I do think where you can introduce more structure, like I said about the skills and really understanding what success looks like, you can bring in less senior talent and give them a chance. I would say, especially for the enterprise, you almost have no choice. It's really hard for a company like mine that's built around talent success to recruit and retain people right now. It's a very challenging market. For a company where you're, you know, tech's sort of an afterthought. We don't know why are these people wearing that? Hey guys, get back in the office. What are you guys doing all day long? Why do you need so many like <laughs> GitHub licenses? Why are you always changing the, the, the culture? It, like it's going to be really hard to bring people in. But if you can bring in less senior people, one of the most effective things I think companies do with us is they partner with us, and we'll help to bring in some seniority and some of our practices and help adjust the organization to that. And then also mentor and train, especially if you have, you know, prom promising talent in different roles or younger talent mm -hmm. that they don't necessarily have the skills, help to mentor and develop them. Um, and then that can be a good compromise and a, a bit of a shortcut. 480 is a lot though, Ray. <laughs> it's a really, I mean, yeah, they're, they're short a ton, they're short a ton of people. Um, but Hey, let's, let's talk about post pandemic behaviors real quick before we lose you. Um, a lot of things, uh, happened during the pandemic. Um, you know, we, you know, Val was talking about some of these changes as well, you know, buy online, pick up in store, the way we actually pre-order things. I mean, you go to a restaurant, you pre-ordered everything before you showed up. I mean, can you imagine that? Like they actually know their inventory, they know their stock, they know exactly, you they're know, how even, much to they're order. They're not even handing out menus. You just get yeah. a barcode, you know, you know, it's all digital. I mean, it, it's, it's completely changed. Right. What stays? Like when you talk to your clients, your top clients that are thinking about this, what stays, what goes away, what comes back to normal? Or the old days. Yeah, yeah, I would say <laughs> we don't even know what normal is. Yeah, yeah, and the, the old days. Yeah, the, I think the old days are gone. Um, I would just say table stakes have increased significantly. Um, just as a reminder, customers don't and never have cared if things are hard. 
you know, they expect things to be easy. They expect them to be integrated. They don't care if your e-commerce database is in one place and your store inventory database is somewhere else. Like, I hope you guys saw that during the pandemic because no one cares. Um, <laughs> and so, and, and the thing that's difficult is, you know, it's never been easier to switch brands, right? People are actively working, yeah. you know, to make the user experience better and better and easier and easier. And these platform players are out there like Shopify to help increase the size of the marketplace. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I think that that's here to stay. The consumer expectation of, you know, I expect online and offline to be the same. They already have a digital first mentality. Yep. Um, and then when you do have an in real life experience, you know, you better have a story. You better have a reason that people mm. buy from you. Hopefully it's not just price because that's hard to compete with. Um, and and kind of capitalize, kind of like just like retaining your talent, retaining your customers, go talk to them, find out why they stay with you, find out what they hate. It's going to hurt to hear from them, but it hurts more to have them just walk away and not understand why. Um, and, you know, get more agile and address their concerns and then come back to them and show, you know, tell them that they are and let them help to spread the word. But yeah, I think that definitely that integration is not, not changing. Um, I don't know how people will stay in business unless they're very small and very specialized and very high end without having, you know, really being yeah. very digitally focused. Customers sure, don't care sure. what department you're in, what channel you're in. I mean, customers <laughs> exactly. don't care. You expect and never have. And, and never have, have really. Absolutely. And never have. Uh, I have a comment and my final question. My comment is I recently spoke to a CEO who's going through extensive digital transformation of his company, and he described RMP's culture as a culture of generosity. He explicitly said that you guys wow, always consistently deliver more than what he expects. And it's just built into your culture. So kudos to you and you. folks that you surround yourself with, because I think at this time where we're all struggling, having a culture of generosity, doing more than people expect is what will differentiate businesses. And, and, and so I was really ha happy to hear that from a CEO. And my question is, um, you're in front of CEOs all the time, and I'm sure they're like, Tracy, help us build our digital transformation playbook. Uh, because you're the, you know, you're the 5,000% growth, successful, incredible clients. So obviously, you're, whatever you're doing is working and working really great. What do you tell CEOs that are asking you to help them shape their playbook? How do you engage with CEOs when they, you know, knock on your door asking for help? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and thank you for the very kind words. Um, you know, the, the first thing to understand is I always say to them, what are the goals of your business? Like digital is not a separate thing. You've got to integrate it into your business. So I'm like, what are your business? Are? What are your challenges? And then we can help through the power of digital impact those key metrics. And sometimes we can come up with, you know, full digital only offers. But for most businesses, they're not touching the power of digital. Digital is not a department, whether you have a chief digital officer or not. Like yeah. the goal should be integration of digital throughout the business for productivity, for talent satisfaction, as well as for new business offers and growth. So I would say my first question is, well, what are you trying to do in your business? And then we can come back and put, put together a roadmap based on return on investment. In that regard, it's no different from anything else you do in your business. Mm -hmm. um, it just needs to be really integrated and, and bought in. If, you, if the CEO is asking that, that's a great sign. They're getting bought in. Right, right. <laughs> right. Uh, more and more board members are asking. Uh, I've attended yeah. several board meetings in the Good. past several months. And it's amazing how, how are we using machine learning? Do we have chatbots in our future? How much of the work can be done on our remote control for life? And it's kind of cool to hear board members yep. that are not technical, by the way. Of course, I think they're all technical in some way, but they're not engineers, they're not developers, and they're asking really good questions. So it, it, it's, it's definitely a sense of urgency that I haven't seen before. Um, Totally agree, man. Form follows function and getting the businesses right and getting the governance structure is so important more than ever, right? I mean, it's, it's having the wrong governance is, is going to cost you, especially making the long-term investments that are required. So, but hey, Tracy, thank you so much. We're here with Tracy Zimmerman, president and CEO of Robots and Pencils. You can follow her at Twitter on TR Zimmerman, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N. Thank you so much for being on the show. And thanks for Robots thank and you. Pencils sponsorship as well. Thank you. Ray. Welcome back. <laughs> How was vacation? <laughs> do, do you even mind. remember? Do you even remember no, this? No, no. <laughs> First of all, it's the fastest hour of my week. Um, every guest we have, I think we can spend a full hour with. <laughs> and 
<laughs> that was just amazing. That was that was uh, uh, that was David Fred Tracy, just just spectacular. Okay, that was episode two forty five. We're actually uh, we've conducted seven hundred and forty nine interviews, Ray. We're one shy of seven. Who's counting? Who's counting? Which will be next week? Seven hundred and fifty interviews next week. We have Brian Bellendorf, a general manager of blockchain, healthcare, and identity at Linux Foundation. So we're going to talk about the power of blockchain. We have Jennifer Briscoe, vice president of product development at Oracle. And we have one of our favorite return guests. He's first time to the fame, uh, Disrupt TV, inductee, Brian Franzo, speaker, change evangelist. And I'm sure we're going to talk about the creator economy, uh, crypto, coins, uh, NFTs, and everything else that's uh, being revolutionized in front of our eye at warp speed. Ray, your closing uh, thoughts on uh, an extraordinary show. You know, I, it's been crazy. I, I have been traveling a lot. I've probably hit something like uh, 30, 30 cities uh, in, in the last 70 TV days. I see people asking you about this book. So congratulations. Um, Thank you. Uh, the book's been doing great. We've had some awesome things. Uh, if you're reading the book, there's $3 trillion market cap opportunities, $100 billion unicorns in the book. Uh, if you figure out how to build one of those, actually, I know how to build one of those. If you're interested, let me know. Some great endorsements of folks. Got Vala Afshar in there as well, of course. Uh, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> but a lot of fun stuff. And uh, yeah, and we're doing a couple of things. We have a book tour in Cary, North Carolina, August 17th. And I think we're doing one in San Francisco in the Bay Area, 9-9. We'll see how things turn out. Uh, but if we'll see you there, it'll be great. So but hey, amazing thanks everybody. Commentary, amazing commentary from CEO of Zora, CEO of Google Cloud, CEO and founder of Salesforce, Mark Benioff. Ray, this book is a, is a smashing hit. Congratulations. Hey, thank you so much. Um, so, hey, but hey, everybody, thanks for being on the show. So, and, and Vala, you know, it's, it's great to have you back. I uh, really enjoy uh, seeing you here. And uh, every Friday, so join us, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern for Disrupt TV. And of course, uh, on all most Fridays. So, see you all here. Thanks a lot. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye, everyone.